It is a privilege to be here with you this morning, as uh, Camper mentioned uh, when he uh, introduced me. I have done, uh, I own, and so far as one owns a nonprofit, a, a nonprofit Christian counseling center or ministry. I have actually uh, two master's degrees. I'm a teaching elder in the PCA. I have a master divinity, and I've run the gauntlet of the PCA at some point in time, uh, as well as uh, master's counseling. And uh, I've had the privilege within. Uh, the PCA to plant two churches, and about 16, 18 months ago, we shifted out of that, at least for a period, into uh, doing more of the counseling full-time, and yet my undergraduate degree was public speaking. I, uh, have, I have been preaching or teaching regularly for 20 years until these last 16 months, and so it's a real privilege when I have the opportunity to come and be with you and open the Word a few weeks in a row, so I wanted to say thank you to Camper and the elders and, uh, the privilege, and you all, the privilege of opening the Word with you. This morning, if uh, you want to go ahead and find your way there, we'll, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and as you turn there, let me, uh, by way of introduction, throw some ideas on the counter for us. Context matters when we preach, when we open a letter, just as I could write a note to um, uh, Camper's wife, Heather, uh, who is a friend, and I could say, hey, love you, Kron. Uh, the word, my expression, love you, has a context to it. Uh, when we come to any passage in the Bible, we need to stop and say, what's its context, lest we should start by creating a meaning for ourselves, uh, because God is talking to us. And uh, In this case, the context of 1 Timothy is simple. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul wrote these words, the goal of our command is love. So command you can take, he's referring to teaching. Here, everything we're teaching, the goal is love. And in Pauline thought, that's two-dimensional. It's an anchor to the great love of God for us, His children, His people. And then how are we to operationally or practically live out that love by ourselves and in community with each other? So the goal of the command here is love. Last week, when I was with you, we talked about the previous part of 1 Timothy 6, in which we identified a series of character qualities that Paul addressed and we, those are envy, strife, contention, abusive speech or slander, etc., evil suspicions, constant friction. We identify together, for those of you who are here, that though we may not teach those things, as a parent I don't teach my children, hey kids, why don't you be selfish? Yet they seem to learn it somewhere. Uh, it's probably my wife, but she's not here, so I'm sticking with that. I'm kidding. Obviously, you know, they learned that from me. I remember my kids are about to be, uh, my younger is 15 this month. My older will be 18 next month. And I can look at my kids at times when they are doing what siblings do, bickering with each other. Anybody here ever bicker with a sibling? Church down the street, I'm sure, but not here. No, nobody would do that at a church like this. But, you know, I can look at them and go, did you guys need help doing that? Or did it just come upon you naturally? You know, and in one of those rare tongue-in-cheek moments, actually, I'm rather sarcastic, and I've unfortunately taught my children to be kind of quippy with us. My daughter looks at me, no, Dad, you and Mom taught us. It's like, ooh, okay, that one hurt. So it's a way to humorously identify that we all live out failure and godliness, don't we? And then we have a choice to make, if you will, a choice in which we can sit and say, failure, lousy, rotten Christian, lousy, rotten Christian, or simply see it as an identification of how sweet is the mercy of Jesus to me. But even in the middle of that, he says, son, I love you and you're mine. See, I'm not on performance with God. God wants us to learn how to live because he loves us, not so that he will. 
We come into this text in front of us today, and we're going to talk about the idea of godliness with contentment. And as we unfold that, I think you'll identify readily how much non-contentment or in-contentment or discontentment. Any English majors out there? What's the word for that one? Lack of contentment. All those things put together. Multi-incontent. There. Um, drive much of our life and our culture. Before I open this word with you, though, let me pray for us. Father, this morning, I thank you for your word. It's yours. You have superintended its writing. You have inspired it uh, by means of your spirit, Holy Spirit, that you have uh, had it written in conjunction with the men of old. We thank you for the words of this letter from the Apostle Paul to his true son in the Lord, Timothy, and how you continue to speak to us in it and through it. Father, I pray for uh, my brothers and sisters, my friends gathered here as much as I pray for me. Will you teach us what it means to be godly, to have lives richly and fully and truly anchored to you? Father, let not my own squabbles and sinful nature get in the way of what you would teach us. Spirit of God, come. Open your word to us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we may behold the sweet and beautiful mercy of our God more fully. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's an interesting idea, this verse, this, well, actually, let me read this to you. 1 Timothy, I'm going to pick up at verse 3 of chapter 6 and read through verse 10. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he's conceited and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy and strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish desires and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The word of the Lord. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. We live in a culture that teaches us aggressively to not have contentment. If you turn your television on later today, as I'm sure I'm going to, I'm a football junkie, you can spend six hours watching commercials. That's what the NFL does. We watch 10 minutes, and then five minutes of commercials, 10 minutes, five minutes of commercials. And what are those commercials going to be driving at? You need something to be better. From something as simple as some kind of a hair care product or a perfume, if you had this, People of the opposite sex would look at you and lose control. You will be incredible. It may be you need the new Lincoln or the Lexus. You will have arrived at the level of status that you know is your due. Yes, you should spend more money than you should ever spend on something that will break down. But you, you can be a person of position. Right? We turn to other channels, other commercials. We live in the world of the antidepressant medication. Now, I'm a counselor. I'm not against antidepressant medication at all, as I make my comments. I've been through six major depressions in my life, and they are real. But if you watch the ads, they go like this. 
you're still struggling in your life, add another drug. It'll make you feel better, right? Pay no attention to all those side effects. Or you, know, you get the commercial from the law firm, total tangent here. If you have experienced suffering or death, please call us. And I always stop. If I've experienced death, how do I call you? But, but what is the age doing? It's saying more is better. If you're struggling with something inside and the solution is external, we'll tell you where to get it. Give us your money and you'll feel better. Get this thing for you and your emotional state will change. Stuff is the solution. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus where Timothy was serving the ancient Rome. It was a Roman Greek city. It was a mixture. It was very affluent. There were teachers in the community. They were philosophers and religious leaders. And his comments here about, about making money is much the same as our marketing age has grabbed you. Oh, they didn't have new cars, but you could come and learn the secrets from me. I have the secret knowledge, but you have to pay me for me to tell you about it. And so instruction in the mysteries of life was a for-profit industry, much the same as often we still live in. The lure, come and learn the secret. Many of our families today, we struggle with money. I remember when I was a kid, I'm one of three boys, if my mom or my dad brought up the subject of money, that meant we should get radiation suits. Any of you ever have parents that argue over money? Oh, liars. Okay. <laughs> you see, what we long for is to be comfortable, don't we? But here's a principle for you. Nothing is going to be more difficult for you than growing spiritual, spiritually when comfortable. Nothing is going to be more difficult than growing spiritually when you are comfortable. And yet, let's be honest together. If Google were recording not only all of our private lives on, on images, if they could record our inner lives when we are praying, how much of your energy and prayer is spent on, Lord, I don't like this, make it better, help me feel better. We live in a culture that teaches an erotic escape from reality rather than a joyful dependence on a God who will meet us and change us within reality. Listen to the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn, if you don't know the name, uh, served in the Red Army in World War II, rose to the rank of artillery captain. Shortly after the war, he was a writer, and he unfortunately made a mistake, um, although he would say God used it in his providence in his life, and he criticized Stalin. At that point, Solzhenitsyn got a tour of a Soviet labor camp. And it was from that labor camp and from that experience that he wrote these words. The meaning of earthly existence lies not, as we have grown used to thinking, in prospering, but in the development of the soul. The meaning of earthly existence lies not in prospering, but in the development of the soul. Paul picks that very idea up here when he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For you brought nothing into the world, and you will take nothing out of it. J.D. Rockefeller, in the latter days of his life, was asked, how much is enough? One dollar more than I have. And then J.D. Rockefeller became a human statistic. One out of one die, and not a dollar went in the grave. It bought him nothing. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It is a soul satisfaction, a soul sufficiency. Now these words work together, though. Godliness 
with sufficiency, with great gain, with a satisfaction. So we need to stop for a minute and define our words. Godliness, a dictionary definition, an awesome respect accorded to God. Devoutness, piety, or godliness. We might use it in terms of the vision statement of this church. A reliance on the gospel of grace. If you want to go to a Bible dictionary, we can read this out of Easton's Bible Dictionary. It has a lot more words because a theologian wrote it, but it's helpful. The whole of practical piety. It supposes knowledge, veneration, affection, dependence, submission, gratitude, and obedience. In a nutshell, it sums up the entirety of the Christian life. But now we must pause for a moment and say, did he just then say, be obedient, be obedient, be obedient? No. You see, if you pick up your Bible and you read it that way, you've missed the hope that is in it from Genesis to Revelation. Godliness with contentment, and that contentment flows from the certainty of the King of Heaven's kind call and gift of Christ for those who would know Him. That in that moment of conversion, he says, you are mine. J.I. Packer, in his classic work, Knowing God, wrote these words. Adoption is the crown jewel of our salvation. We are content because we have internalized, because we know that the high king of heaven has adopted us and brought us home and we are his. And we we begin to live out a full-orbed life, out of a radical new identity that the Father calls me son, and I am his. Now in the discontent in which we live, against the marketing age of the day, against the cry of our flesh for escape and for more, that is a hard voice to hear and to hold on to. Then godliness with contentment is great gain. Not behave rightly and hope it gets better. There's a big difference, men and women. Godliness with contentment is a life anchored to the certainty of God and His promises for you and for me. It's not a private affair. The King of Heaven has made me His own, and then He has set me with a living purpose, this side of Heaven, which I will see the fullness of on the day that I get to be with Him. So godliness encompasses all of life in that simple teaching of 1 Timothy 1.5. The goal of our command is love. A love that it comes because he first loved me and has poured out in love to the world and to all whom he will call. Now we need to stop and pause and say, okay, what's the problem with this? Let's ask three questions here together. What obstacles exist to my own godliness? What are the obstacles to which I cling that keeps me from this dependent delight on my Father? How can I grow in godliness And what is the anchor to which godliness is attached? First, to what obstacles do we cling? I I think oftentimes the first thing we subtly imbibe is a bad perspective on life. My life is too hard. I'm too buried under my circumstances. Financial, health, loss, suffering. Many of us as the non-students in the room are stressed financially right now. I know where you are. I kind of tease my wife, if we open our second story window, the water's going to come in because we're so underwater. There's no escape. Stress comes upon us when we worry about the circumstance. I watched my father-in-law 
uh, 16 months after I was married die, but it took him the entire 16 months of my married first 16 months of my married life to die from diabetic complications, which included amputations, renal failure, multiple heart failures. Yet when they asked him, what do you want us to do when your heart stops? Sam would look at them and say, that's not my call. You do your part. We'll let God do his. I want to know Jesus, and so I'll suffer through. He met the Lord after he lost his first leg, I might comment. I remember listening to Howard Hendricks He's with the Lord now, I believe. Uh, when I first heard him teach, he was already in his 70s. I was a college student, which was just like three years ago. But, you know, <clears throat> you know, it was before cell phones, right? We used to say before indoor plumbing, but now we can say before cell phones. Or certainly before Apple and Android. But a, man, a young man came into his office and um, was clearly struggling. And so, how, so Dr. Hendricks said, how are you? And the young man responded to him, and he said, well, Prof, pretty good under the circumstances. You knew Howard Hendricks, he's always one for a quick one-liner, and he looks at the man and he goes, what are you doing under there? <laughs> now, it's a quip, but it's pointed. I'm not under circumstances. I'm under the hand of my sovereign and kind Father. My circumstances are not my Lord. You and I are prone to orbit something. The writer of Ecclesiastes put it this way, there is eternity in the heart of everyone. God put it there. So we can orbit the complaint of our hurt and our suffering. We can orbit the complaint of too much or too little. We're going to orbit something. And it will define our lives. Some of us might say, but, I'm, but I want to be used by God, but I'm not gifted enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not smart enough. It was never about you in the first place. You want to read the delightful passage to think about, start in Exodus 3 and listen to Moses' dialogue with God. I mean, he's there at the burning bush. He's hearing the voice of the Lord directly and busily going, but I'm not articulate. But, but, but. You can do the same thing with Peter. After he's risen, Jesus calls him to his side and he says to him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you, using a different word than Jesus is for love. Three times the conversation, and on the third one, you've got to hear the cracking in Peter. He gets honest. And Jesus says, okay, good, now go feed my sheep. By the way, three days ago, I know you betrayed me. But now that we're going to be honest, go feed my sheep. It wasn't about me in the first place. It was about the King of Heaven coming for me and for you. Godliness with contentment. Some of us... What gets in the way is our sin. We want to be in control. I need to manage everything around me and everyone. Some of us, we get gives birth to lust and to addiction and to materialism. Give me more, more, and then I'll have the satisfaction that I long for. You see, we, grow, we live in a culture that is fragmented into our escape. By the mid-1990s, I think the number I'm going to give you is correct. Something like 90 million prescriptions had been filled for Prozac in the United States. That's not 90 million users. If you've taken it for a year, you've filled 12 prescriptions. But that's one medication. One. Because we are busy running away from the hard questions of our souls. And yet, if you pick up your Bible, God says, I have the answer for those hard questions for you. Often, I don't want to hear them. I'm just like you. I want to pray, God, make this better. 
I'm having a problem in my relationship. Father, will you help them be kind to me? Not so prone to say, Lord, will you help me love them even when it's difficult? And yet, in the middle of that, we all know better somewhere inside. Let me make that illustrate this differently. Um, when a child is frightened in the night, they haven't learned yet to be autonomous. What do they do? They scream. What do we do if we're their parents? We come into their room and we offer them comfort. We stroke their hair. We pray with them or we hum or we sing a song to them. We don't just stand back at a distance, live long and prosper, my child. There's nothing to be afraid of, do we? No, we don't. Because, now, there's two things underway there. The child hasn't learned yet to avoid the hard questions. They cry them out knowing that the solution is relationship, mommy, daddy. Somewhere along the way in our minds, we have bought this lie that maturity equals autonomy. And that's a lie. Jesus said, apart from my Father, I can do nothing. And in John 15, he taught the disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Maturity is dependency. A child still knows it. Somewhere we've lost it. And then we continue to look for something to fill the empty place inside and struggle with a lack of contentment. Godliness is great gain, present tense, right now not just for eternity, being connected to God right now. A child knows his need for his father, and he feels safe or she feels safe as the parent comes for them. God the Father Almighty and the person of Jesus came for you. It's okay to cry out in the night. He's always going to come. Second question, how can you and I grow in godliness? Here's the hard part, I think, you guys. I'm not going to give you, here's three easy steps. Read your Bible more and pray more. Well, that would be two. Come talk to Camper and confess your sins more frequently. There's three. Um, because you can do the right thing and have your heart utterly disconnected, can't you? I think the cry of a, many Christian souls today is, I do believe in Jesus. Why doesn't it make any difference? My life still hurts. How can I grow in godliness? First and foremost, be honest with God and with yourself. God, I'm afraid. God, I'm scared to trust you. God, I'm angry with my friend, my roommate, my spouse, or my child. God, I don't want to love them. God, I hate my circumstance. Oh, God, help my heart. Remind me that you will not let go of me any more than a good human parent does a child in the middle of the night. You might look at your time. You might pull your Google Calendar out or your Outlook, whatever you use. You might pop your checkbook or your credit card statement out. You might look and say, let's be honest with myself. What's the most important thing in my life? Is it meeting the cry of my soul? Again, we're going to orbit something. The temporal fades away. God and people and his word will last forever. You might think about your relationships. What are you chasing after? How do you justify avoiding your wife or your husband or yelling or doing anger or withdrawal? You're busy being an orphan. My father's not good enough to take care of me, so I have to demand that the universe matches my desire. 
and I will sacrifice those around me on my own personal altar, wondering why I'm still discontented. Because there's only one God, and you and I are not Him. Third question, what is the anchor to which godliness is attached? The character of God and the Word of God. The author of Hebrews wrote these words in chapter 6, verses 16 and following. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all, judge, all argument. But because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. And this hope is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Two things. His character never changes, and his word remains unbroken. These are the only two things that will provide the sufficiency of your soul that you long for. If you're married, your wife can't give it to you. Your husband can't give it to you. Parenting will not satisfy it. Getting high enough grades or the right jobs after college can't fix it. There is eternity in your heart. Leaving yourself in an orbit around anything temporary will leave you empty. We read this passage again, and we can identify three themes at least. God is sovereign, meaning he's actually in control of everything. Paul wrote of Jesus in Colossians, he, he made the heavens and the earth. All things were made for him and by him, things in heaven, things on the earth, things future, things past. Everything is made for him and by him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. Someday we're going to make a, mo a powerful enough electron microscope. They're going to get all the way down to the bottom and understand what holds the fabric of the universe together. It's going to say Colossians 1, Jesus. He is kind. We can read in Isaiah 30, 15, and 18. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says in repentance or in returning and rest is your salvation, quietness and trust, your strength, but you would have none of it. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Blessed or happy are all who wait on Him. See, there's an idea there. We need to be returning. How often do I need to be returning my heart? I don't know about you. You look a lot like me. Some of you have smaller faces, but I need to be returning kind of constantly. Even as I teased earlier about my children, I don't need any help being selfish. Do any of you? Anybody need to wake up, Lord, help me be selfish, envious, jealous, angry, irritable, or anything like that? Do you have to ask for help with that? No. My heart moves right into an orphan state just like that, right into a place where I'm enslaved to my circumstance and the things going on around me or in me. But God, but God, father to his children. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You brought nothing into the world and you can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. If you pick up an 8 and 10, Paul talks to those of us who have much and those of us who have little. See, and he uses material possession here. See, I can have little, and then I long for more. And I subtly worship my poverty in that way. I give my poverty permission to drive my identity and my well-being. I've been in poverty in my life. 
Not a harsh one, but I've been in hard places plenty in my life. I could turn that over and many of you are well off and managing your resources becomes your God. You have done it right. Let me help everybody else do it right. So whether we have much or whether we have little, it's a subtle thing. Where does it come from? When I worked with Campus Crusade for Christ at Cornell in a different life, I remember talking with a couple of my students close to their graduation, and they were wrestling with whether God might be calling them toward the ministry. And I remember one of them vividly saying, he could never do what I do. I said, well, why? It's because I can't trust God to provide that for me, so I'm going to go get a job. I'm like, really? Well, who provides the job? Who orders that Procter & Gamble continues to exist as a corporation? Not an argument that, therefore, you must go on staff with Campus Crusade or work for a church, but you can hear the subtlety of the difference, as though God meets you over here, but I need to go take care of myself over here. The only difference is the mechanism. God is still the king, the father, the master, the sovereign of it all. See, wealth isn't wrong. Worship it, it is. Being paid well is not wrong. Letting it be your God is. Living in suburban America is not wrong. Letting a lifestyle own you is. Wealth and money is not the root of all kinds of evil. The worship of it is. Desiring wealth isn't necessarily wrong. You may have the gift of giving. I have a friend who makes an extraordinary amount of money, and the amount of money they give away is even more extraordinary to me. They don't hoard it. They just write it. Thank you, God, and give it. You see, if you have greed for peace, reputation, position, power, it's only going to leave you eager for more the practice of your greed. It's going to pierce you through. As Paul writes here, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs because it's a false thing that can't meet you. Noted theologian and cultural commentator in an interview with Rolling Stone, Brad Pitt, um, <laughs> had this to say, Man, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, our version of success, but if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, I say, toss all this. We've got to find something else, because all I know is that at this point in time, we are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. And I don't want Brad Pitt. So the, so the interviewer asks him, well, if we're headed toward this kind of existential dead end in society, what do you think should happen? Hey, man, I don't have the answers on that one yet. The emptiness now, the emphasis now is on success and personal gains, and he smiles. And I'm sitting in it. I'm telling you, that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything, I know, but I'm telling you, once you got everything, then you're just left with yourself. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better. You don't wake up any better because of it. It pierces you with many griefs. What you worship matters. And you do worship, whether you know it or not. There is a hub to your life that drives you. 
Christ Jesus calls us to a life of worshiping dependency on him. And a soul-satisfying sufficiency is the normative outcome. And as we know him, our lives begin to mark by a humble willingness to love our neighbors and those around us, irregardless of the ease of it. You see, Jesus himself was already pierced, wasn't he? He was pierced for us so that we would not need to be pierced by these griefs, so that they would not have mastery over us. Men and women, I invite you to think, what is God calling you to? The next verse is 11. But you, man or person of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness. What do you need to be honest about this morning? Maybe you're in the place where you know what, I see I worship false things and they're crushing me. I invite you to just sit right where you are and turn your heart to the living God. Lord Jesus, come into my life, forgive my sin, make me the person you want me to be, I yield, take me. If that's where you are, I want to invite you to come and catch camper afterwards. You can sit right there and pray that by yourself. God hears you. Talk to camper or Ben or somebody you know. Let them know that that's the transaction that just happened in your life. Most of us sitting here, need to wrestle with that severe honesty a little bit more probably. So invite the Spirit of God to talk to you about what you demand, what you pursue, thinking that it will meet you. Look at the evidence of it in your life. Be honest and invite the Lord to have his way afresh in you. For the King of Heaven already sent his Son to be pierced for you. You don't need that anymore.